0: Hey, I know you're here for the podcast, but give me 30 seconds to talk about a new service we just released for anyone working in a CPG brand. Finding the perfect co-packer or supplier can be a real pain. You spend hours Googling options, texting your colleagues, asking around different Slack groups, and still you get nothing. That's why we created Fiddle Connect Consulting, a done-for-you service that does all of the hard work of finding your dream co-packer or supplier. Best of all, it's 100% guaranteed, and you get three free months of Fiddle Inventory Operations software included. Interested? Just go to lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. That's lp.fiddle.io forward slash FCC. Now, on with the episode.
1: Welcome to the Physical Product Movement, a podcast by Fiddle. We share stories of the world's most ambitious and exciting physical product brands to help you capitalize on the monumental change in how, why, and where consumers buy. I'm your host, Ken Ojuka. In this episode, I speak with Josh Balinski, co founder of Slate Milk, a line of lactose free, higher protein, and better for you brand of chocolate milk. We discuss how struggles with lactose intolerance, but at the same time having a love for chocolate milk, motivated him to start his company. We talk about how a random LinkedIn message to someone Josh really looked up to led to a new investor and mentor. And we also talk about the importance of asking the right questions when doing customer research and staying curious, especially when breaking into a very competitive category. Slate Milk is on a tear right now, and anyone interested in the space should keep an eye on them. I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation with Josh Balinski. Enjoy. All right, Josh, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you, man? I am good. It's Friday, and I'm um, <laughs> looking forward to having some fun and, and hanging out a little bit with the fam. Um, you nice. got any big plans this weekend?
0: well boston is is going to be hit by a hurricane on sunday where we're at so i think we're just going to hunker in and try to hopefully our cable stays intact so we can watch the end of the golf tournament first week of the playoffs and there you go
1: uh-huh.
0: maybe some football whatever else is on
1: well oh, cool cool yeah and, and make sure to be safe that's a yeah, little bit weird for boston isn't it very strange i no idea
0: what's going on it's been very very hot here though and very rainy this summer so i don't know
1: yeah, we're out here in Utah, and uh, we've been dealing with all the smoke from California. Oh, yeah. You know, and it all t- right. tends to head this way and settle in our, in our valley here. Um, well, really so- interesting.
0: I, I saw an article today that it hasn't quite affected us on the East Coast, but all the dairies out there, speaking of milk, all the mm-hmm. cows are producing a lot less milk right now because of all of the smoke inhalation, which I thought was fascinating.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, we definitely want to speak about milk and and hear your story. But first, uh, let's just kick it off with uh, with a quote. Do you have something that is uh, impactful uh, to you or, or something that you keep in mind?
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of, I think, what I keep in the back of my mind came from friends and family growing up and especially my parents. And one of the quotes my dad always had growing up was, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And I really like that. And, and Guy Raz actually um, has the podcast "How I Built This" about entrepreneurs, which I love listening to. And at the too. end of every podcast, he always says how much was you and how much was luck. And I always think that the answer is both. You really can't win without one or, without the two combined. And so you know, I was actually just chatting with one of our sales reps today about um, finally getting a meeting that we've been trying to get for a long time, and you know, the kind of a lucky string of events had to happen for it to, to get there, but the persistent follow-up is really what made it happen. So I really love that saying and I've definitely kept it with me through really every aspect of my life.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, and I, and I love it too. And the, one way that I kind of look at it is that, you know, you have to be out there and be in a position to take advantage of the luck, you know, when it happens. And it doesn't, doesn't happen if you're, if you're not out there and putting yourself out there and kind of grinding as hard as you can then, you know, something might happen, but you're not ready for it. So you can't even even benefit from it, you know? Yep, exactly. 100% agree. It's a great quote and a great podcast, How I Built This. Love that one. Yes, yes. Yeah, so why don't you just tell us just a little bit about yourself? We know that you're out in Boston and your name's Josh, but why don't you tell us just a little (laughs) bit more?
0: Yeah, so Josh Walensky out here in Boston, born and raised in the suburbs out here. Went to high school here, went to college here was a part of my first startup here and started Slate out of here. So Boston definitely has a way of of keeping you. Once I feel like a lot of people are from Boston, stay in Boston. My co-founder is a very similar story. His name is Manny, um, also from the suburbs. And we actually both went to the same college. So we both went to Northeastern University right in downtown. We both were exposed to startups pretty early on in our college careers. Northeastern Mm -hmm. has really put an emphasis on entrepreneurship. And they have an incubator program there that both of us with our very first startups were immersed in i joined another company but he actually started one with his brother and we just learned a lot about how to do things very very incorrectly and wrong and uh <laughs> we like to say it was it wasn't necessarily, they weren't failures they were learning experiences and you know we we were our own bosses at you know 18 19 years old and just kind of figuring things out and and both went on to grow those businesses for a couple of years. I took a job with a tech company after a couple of years there because I just really wanted to learn from people that were smarter than me and I wasn't ready to be my own boss. So worked worked for a tech company that had raised a lot of venture capital dollars and really was the third employee. And so was able to see over the course of three years, a lot of different business models and pricing structures and team build outs and Um, again, a lot of things that they did really, really well and then a lot of opportunities to learn there as well. And so in starting Slate about right out of, basically I was working all throughout college. And so about a year out of college is when I started Slate with Manny. You know, we had already gone through what we say was our MBA and and learning from all of those missteps. And we thought that we were going to be a good pair to try to take on the wide world of milk.
1: There you go. There you go. I like it. Um, what yeah. was it? the tech company? Is, is it something you can talk about?
0: Yeah. So it was it was funded out here in, right here in Boston. So the first food company was an energy bar company taking on um, like Cliff Bar at the time. We were a healthy energy bar. Did that for a couple of years. And then I joined a company at the time that was called Venture App. And they were seeded right out of the VC in Cambridge. Just an incredible team. All five co-founders had previously founded and sold businesses before. And just some of the best fundraisers I had ever met and just culture builders and team motivators and very, very, very smart humans. And you know, they the, the company has since pivoted to now being a real estate tech company called HQO. They've raised, I can't even keep track, a hundred and something million dollars worth from some of the largest VCs and real estate firms. And they've kind of found their groove in the world of real estate tech. So still remain friends with a lot of those guys. And you know, it's very impressive to see what they're doing. And after about three years there, I, I loved what I was doing and I loved the whole team. And I always tell people, it's like breaking up with your girlfriend after a three-year relationship, like it's one of the hardest things to do. But yeah. I had this really, really great opportunity that Manny and I have been working on kind of nights and weekends for about six to eight months, just kind of doing research on an opportunity in the CPG space. And we both love chocolate milk. We're both super into health and fitness. And we both have tummy issues. We both can't digest lactose. We're lactose intolerant. So we jokingly were talking about starting a business that entire time. And one thing led to another. And we just found that there was this big opportunity we could go pursue. And I knew I just I couldn't stay at that company anymore. And you know, our my my CEO and, and the other founders, you know, it was it was a bummer when I left for everybody. But, you know, they they know better than anybody that when you have your baby and you're ready to go pursue it, there's really nothing getting in your way.
1: yeah um one of the terms that 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 i think describes that that feeling you know is from the e-myth you did did you ever read that book no Uh, the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial myth anyway one of the the terms that he uses in there is a is a entrepreneurial seizure it's like the idea like seizes hold of you and won't let go (laughs) you know and it just takes over you know like that so I, I definitely know that know that feeling. Yep. So a couple of things I want to dig into. Boston in general is pretty entrepreneurial. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of um, venture capitalists out there, a lot of great companies built out of there. Do you think that had an influence on you in, in terms of making you want to start your own business? Or you know, where, where do you 100%. Think that desire started.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think part of being in this this culture as a whole is a massive impact on it. My, my dad growing up, I mean, he was always in sales and marketing and he was, he was very entrepreneurial at heart, but he'll say that he was never a risk taker. He never went out and started his own thing. He, he always wanted to build his own little companies inside larger companies, which he was very successful at, but, and I, I never put two and two together because my mom was always in healthcare and I never thought about it, but she had her own private practice. She's an occupational therapist for musicians. And so she had her own private practice for 18 years. Yeah. And you know, she was, she was probably the most entrepreneurial in the whole family. And, um, so I kind of grew up around it without really knowing it. And, or I just didn't put two and two together. And, um, then growing up in Boston, I caddied a lot. And I always tell people that was kind of my first little business that I ran because it was me against everybody else out there for the caddies and, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to get the best loops and get the best guys and trying to get repeat business from the, the best payers, but also the people that were nicest and was able to build some really lifelong relationships with a lot of the different folks that I caddy for. And that was kind of my first stab at it. And I always thought in middle school and high school I was going to go be a civil engineer and build bridges. But everybody around me told me there's literally no way I meant to do that long term. I have to be out there <laughs> talking to people. And by the time I got to be a freshman in college, I had enrolled in business at Northeastern. And that's when I met the energy bar guys and kind of the rest is history. But you know, being at Northeastern and bumping into those guys, everything was so focused around entrepreneurship and they were, you know, at a shark tank style competition and there was just so much excitement around it that, you know, between being in Boston, but then also really being at Northeastern really helps
1: light that fire even more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There's nothing quite like seeing it right. And, and, you know, meeting people who are doing it and realizing, wait a minute, I can do it too. You know?
0: Yeah, exactly. They're, they're happy. They're excited to wake up and go to work.
1: It's, it's very
0: rare that I've seen.
1: So, so what about the the focus on CPG, right? So the energy bar uh, companies yep. and CPG. You, you mentioned a couple other things in in CPG. Was that a space that you were looking at, or were you looking at, you know, going the the tech route, or you know, what were your thoughts about the type of business to start?
0: Always tech. I, like when I got to school in the CPG, I was like, that's cool. You can taste it, feel it, touch it. Other people can try it, experience it. And then when I got in the tech world, I was just so fascinated. I loved all the AI, the robotics, the the impact and the scalability that tech had with, you know, once you have the upfront capital, it can kind of just expand, expand, expand. And I loved it. And I had no intention of ever going back to CPG, but I was kidding myself. I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate and fan of just better for you, better for the planet. And growing up, my dad and I, especially, would always be sending each other new energy bars or new drinks or whatever because you know we grew up drinking Tang and Capri Sun and soda and <laughs> Snapple iced tea and I mean we we didn't know right fat was the enemy so we're like oh all this stuff doesn't have fat in it and so it's fine and tastes delicious and then we find out sugar is really bad and so as I got into high school and was focusing a lot more on like basketball and golf and just more fitness things you know my dad was a little little on the heavier side at the time and. He was really putting a lot of effort into losing weight. So we would challenge each other to find a lot of health foods. And we just noticed I also had a lot of um, stomach issues. And I, just when I ate right, not only did my body feel better, but like mentally, I felt better and was just really, I saw the results from my dad too. And it just got me really excited about food. So anyway, getting in the tech space, when Manny and I first met, it was actually after college uh, when I was at my tech company and he was at his we had always started about starting a tech company together and somehow it came up that we both still drank lactose-free chocolate milk and we were like making fun of each other for it. And you know, it's, it's the brand screamed to the world. You're lactose intolerant. It's high in sugar. It's not that good for you. And so we jokingly were like, Oh, we should just start a lactose-free chocolate milk company and make it healthier for you. And some of the stuff we did on our nights and weekends to look into it was absurd. Like we, with Google, like, can you boil the sugar out of milk? Because milk naturally has sugar in it. Like, we were just trying to figure out any way to make this thing a reality. And that was kind of the, the beginning of, of us figuring out what we wanted to do. And it was just so much fun. And now, especially, we talk about when creating a product, we're not just giving somebody another option. This is how we feel about Slate. It's not just another chocolate milk where somebody could be drinking ours because it's in a better package. It's not just that. It's actually enhancing their lives because we are taking sugar out of their diet. We are giving them more protein. And it's while they're drinking it, they can feel good about the fact that this milk product is better for the planet than all of our competitors. And so to us, like that story of something that's actually increasing people's lives, giving them happiness and letters that we've received from farmers about how excited they are that, you know, we're not just doing another almond milk, that we're actually taking on real dairy, helping grow that business from 12 year old kids that could never have milk in the lunchroom. And they were that kid with the sippy cup. You know, (laughs) I was there, I would always bring chocolate milk and like the stupid, like sippy cup thing. And because I needed my chocolate milk, but I couldn't have lactose, you know, and to say like, you know, he can go to school with his chocolate milk now. And all that stuff is just so amazing that while there are many, many, many incredible things tech does, being in the software space just didn't give me the same type of of passion and satisfaction that a healthy CBG product has.
1: uh, Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's funny, as you described yourself, you know, um, into sports, you know, into business and tech, and then also being lactose intolerant, you know, that's, that's like me, right? And my (laughs) my approach to it was not to drink the the, the lactose free uh, milk is I basically just Stop drinking milk, right? Yep. I hear it and, all the time. And and yeah, and that's and that's and that's exactly my point is that you know the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that I'm not alone. You know, a lot right. of people have have problems with with milk. And so, could yeah. you maybe dive into a little bit of the lactose and and sure, what why you know we we have such such issues with it and what what it even is? You know, just to yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen.
0: No, yeah. Was, that's that's a good call. I've kind of skipped over the product. So, you know, the product's called Slate Slate Milk. And basically what Manny and I realized is that there's a lot of people that have, like you said, haven't had milk in like 20 years. And milk to its core, it does have some negative things. It has sugar. Lactose is just a big sugar. So every cup of white milk, whether it's skim 2% or whole, all has 12 grams of sugar in it. And that's all lactose. And basically in your body, you have this enzyme called the lactase enzyme that when the lactose goes in there, the lactase is supposed to smash the lactose into two smaller sugars that your body can digest and absorb as a carb or um, kind of get rid of. And right. for most people, basically, there's there's lactose in breast milk, and so as a baby, you need those enzymes to digest it, which is why kids most of the time aren't lactose intolerant. And then as you get older and closer to puberty, you lose the lactase enzyme because the idea is, as adults, you stop drinking breast milk. And but you know, in Western civilization, people continue to drink cow's milk. And so some people's bodies stay adapted to it and still have that enzyme, but most people don't. And so what happens is when the lactose enters your digestive tract, then um, your body can't digest it and, and smash it into smaller pieces. So it kind of uh, irritates your entire GI tract. And that's why people get kind of the gas and the other discomfort that comes along with drinking milk. Mm. So we know more about milk now than we ever thought we would, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's why when you see people popping lactate pills to make their t- stomachs not hurt, those are just lactase enzymes. That's just them giving their body the enzyme to help break down that lactose that they wouldn't be able to do without it. And so, you know, take a step back of, of looking at starting this brand. We we love chocolate milk, but we we couldn't drink it every day because the current options just weren't healthy enough for us. And we wanted to find, you know, what are all the reasons why people are not drinking milk right now? And, and what do people really want in beverages? And, you know, people wanted less sugar, they wanted more protein, and they wanted products with functionality. It's, you know, they're, they're, you're, there's going to always be soda. There's going to always be items that are unhealthy that people may have on an infrequent occasion because it's indulgent. But something that people can drink every single day that are healthy-minded, we knew that this had to be something that could be in somebody's routine. And so milk, like I said, has 12 grams of sugar. So we knew we had to find a way to get the sugar out of there. Lactose affects a lot of people's stomachs. So we had to be lactose-free. Milk uses a lot of water. A lot of the farms use water. The milk itself, And so we had to find a way to um, be more water-sufficient. Milk spoils really quickly. And it's usually packaged in plastic bottles. Um, and then all of that, on addition, the package is always branded towards kids or bodybuilders. There's like nothing in between. You're either drinking an Nesquik or you're drinking a Muscle Milk. There's nothing in between. <laughs> yeah. So we had all these issues and we wrote them on Manny's whiteboard in his apartment and, and it took us about a year to figure out how to, how to solve them. But essentially it was him and his brother creating a sleek brand on PowerPoint with a little bit of uh touch-up on Photoshop. So it wasn't anything crazy. We found out about a process called ultrafiltration, which it's, think of it like a Brita filter. You pour the milk through it because lactose is a big sugar. It gets caught on top of the filter. And what comes through is all the protein and the goodness of the milk. And it leaves behind the sugar and the bad stuff. What's also interesting is H2O or water is also a big molecule. So that also gets stuck. And so that water is then used back on the farms that we use. So we, we've partnered with 30 family-owned farms where we get our milk from. And so we just, we're just we just taking them, you know, milk is 90% water. And so we end up taking some of the water out of the milk and using it back on the farms so they don't use any outside water on those farms. And what comes through is, is a concentrated, thicker version of milk that's very high in protein that doesn't have lactose in it. And just in case a little lactose squeezes through, we add a lactase enzyme just to make sure people are 100% safe. It's 100% lactose free. So now we have this like high protein, no sugar base that we mix with all the delicious chocolate from the Netherlands. And we have an espresso flavor that we mix with Colombian coffee to get some caffeine in there. And we take that and then we put it in an aluminum can. So it's 100% recyclable aluminum can, no plastic. And we put it in a big pressure cooker, very similar to like what a Starbucks Frappuccino goes into or anything like that. And it allows our product to be shelf stable with a shelf life of nine months to over a year. And for us, that was kind of like, you know, we were able to get a good brand with no low low to no sugar, had a long shelf life, got rid of plastic. And really another piece of the plastic usage was, you know, we come in a 12-pack tray that has plastic shrink wrap on it and then when you ship these things out in pallets they have plastic shrink wrap on the pallets there's no real solution for that yet so we thought about what we could do to really help our carbon footprint and there's really amazing company that helped us partner with a group called takataka and they're in kenya and basically we pay them for every pound of plastic we put into the world used on our cases or or pallets we pay a, a group down in Kenya to actually pull a pound of plastic out of the ocean, because that's where a lot of our plastic waste goes, is huh. you know, a lot towards Africa and India and their oceans. And so that's been a really cool group for us to work with, and it's allowed us to be plastic neutral as a company. And you know, we're always working on ways to try to improve on all of this stuff. But you know that's why we say it's better for people and better for the planet, and, and we really mean it.
1: That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So you, so you talked about the ultra filtration process, you know, and, yep. and, you know, that doesn't just come to you, right? Like, uh, <laughs> it sounds like you guys were working, working on this, you know, how did you guys come across that and, and, and see that as, a, as something viable for your product?
0: Can't make this stuff up. And Like we said, the harder you work, the luckier you get. We were Googling and calling and we could not figure out how to get the sugar out of milk. So we LinkedIn searched dairy expert, found this guy, Marv his cell phone was in his LinkedIn description, called him. (laughs) Uh He spent an hour with us on the phone telling us all the different ways to make something lactose-free or lower sugar. And to this day, I still don't know if he has any idea who we are or the fact that we created Slate, but he was the one that taught us about ultrafiltration. And we we did a bunch of research and talked to some formulators and we got connected with a group of farms that kind of pooled their money together to create a co-op and they bought an ultrafiltration machine and you know, that's how we kind of got started. So we work with a group right in upstate New York and they've been awesome.
1: That's cool. That's cool. Good job, yeah. Marv. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. We owe a lot to him. <laughs> yeah. You need to just send him, send him some slate, you know?
0: I know. I got to, we got to, honestly, we got to figure out who what is his, his full name is and uh where he lives and we definitely will.
1: Yeah. I think there's a lesson there and, you know, hard work, of course, but I, I also think in just, and just not being afraid to, to ask, you know, just call. 100%. I mean, what's, what's the worst that could happen? He says, yep. you know, no, thanks. I don't want to help you, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, couldn't agree more. Cool, cool. Well, I wanted to to just talk a little bit about your go-to-market. And, you know, I think that, that you mentioned, you know, Manny and his brother worked on the branding. I think your branding is yep. awesome. And it's very Appreciate unique in the space. I think you guys nailed it. And, you know, so I guess let's start there. Let's start about, let's talk a little bit about positioning, you know, how you thought about this, who was it for, you know, and then how did you decide how to, how to go after that group?
0: Yeah. When we were first kind of looking at the space, we were, we were going to be all black and white. Cause if you look at the dairy category, ready to drink categories, a lot of vibrant colors. And we were like, we're going to have an all black container and it's going to be kind of more intense and really stand out. And, you know, we we lived in the grocery stores. We would walk into stores every single day, every city we went to. We'd travel for a wedding. We'd be taking pictures of the shelves and really trying to figure out how can we stand out. And, you Hughes, know, We're, just, we're just, milk nerds is what it sounds oh like. Oh my God, we're huge nerds. And still are. We still <laughs> do it. Like my girlfriend refuses to go into grocery stores with me anymore because I'm in there for like an hour. And uh, the amount of things I've made her try too, you know, it's but you know, it's, it's we live it, we breathe it. We, we say that if you cut our veins open, charcoal milk pours out. So... You know that was kind of a traditional idea, but what we realized is that people have to know what the hell the product is. So if we're all black, they're gonna have no idea what this is. So we knew we had to create colors that really told consumers who we like, who and what we were. And there was actually a professor at Northeastern that used to work for Mars, and he told us about this really interesting thing called the twenty-five-five-one rule. And the idea yeah. is, from twenty-five feet away, what do people see? And essentially, it's the largest color on your package, the shape of your package, and maybe the biggest word on your package. Then when they're five feet away, they can kind of see some of the secondary words, potentially some of the secondary claims, but definitely the whatever the major title or claim of your product is. Mm-hmm. And then you have to convince them to get to one foot away from there, which is they turn it over and they look at the nutritional facts and that's what's going to sell them on putting you in your cart. So I we always kind of lived by that and so you know for us going into a can not only was it a sustainability play but there's no chocolate milk in a can right now there was no chocolate milk in a can and it really stood out to our consumer as something that was sleek you know this 12 ounce sleek can is what white claws are in it's what you know it's exploded as a category over the last couple of years but at the time there was much fewer products and it really when we showed a bunch of consumers in in different studies all these different package designs the sleek can felt healthier to people. It was tall and sleek, just how people want to feel. And you know, to us, that that's kind of why we went after it. And so, from the can itself, and then the really simple, we, we took from RX Bar, we took from Halo Top. You know, pretty much every other brand that I'm sure every CPG company likes to quote. But we thought what they did really well was keep things simple, and just state what they are. Halo Top was 250 calories. RX Bar had six almonds and three egg whites and whatever. And you know, we're just chocolate milk, you know, we're not, we didn't have all these crazy claims on or anything like that. Like we are just chocolate milk and we have 20 grams of protein and no grams of sugar. So that's what we really wanted to get across is a, this thing is going to taste great. It's unique. It's in a can. What is that? Then it's going to taste great because it tastes, everybody knows what chocolate milk is. It's not something like totally unique. It's just chocolate milk. And then, Whoa, it has 20 grams of protein and no sugar. You flip it over and it's all natural. That's what's going to get them to put it in the cart. So that's really why we went kind of this this design direction. And ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the credit of what it looks like is 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 because a man named his brother. I am very non creative, and I'll take a very small, slim percentage of that for any kind of feedback I might have.
1: <laughs> well, you end up with a great product, so <laughs> so it's working. So then, okay, so you you designed the product. You know, you had it formulated. I mean, you're you're ready to go. Yeah. Um, then then what did you guys decide to do at that point to get this into the hands of, of some customers?
0: Yeah, so supply chain took us almost two years to build. It was unique. I mean, the ultrafiltration process, there's very few ultrafiltration um groups in the country. And then what we do is called retort, which is the pressure cooker process. There's very few of those and even fewer that can do it for milk. So building that, we, we were banging our heads against the wall trying to find a way to bring this thing to market. And so we decided to do a Kickstarter. And I would highly recommend Kickstarter to anybody. I would never recommend it as a funding source. I would much more recommend it as a marketing play um, mm-hmm. because you're gonna get some of your most loyal fans through Kickstarter. but you are people are pre-ordering your product. So unless you're doing like it for a movie or something, that's more of a fundraising thing. But you know for a product company, people are pre-ordering it usually for a discount of what you're gonna sell it for. So you know, you got to be ready to fulfill that and you know maybe you can help pay for the production run, but it's really, it's an inventory play. But but anyway, we were able to do a Kickstarter before we actually even locked in our final manufacturing partner. We, we begged and pleaded a, a local company to make some samples for us. And we threw a big Kickstarter party at the Bell in Hand right in Boston, one of the oldest bars in the country. And we expected 40 friends and family to show up. And we labeled it as the chocolate milk party. And (laughs) by the end of the night, we had 400 people there. People were asking me why I was there because they didn't realize it was for our company. And uh, we had so much fun. We hit our $10,000 goal in the first night. Manny and I were uh, shaking up cans of chocolate milk and spraying it everywhere all over the ceiling. And they were so mad at us. But the the restaurant ended up waiving any cleaning fees because they made so much money at the bar that night uh, (laughs) from all the people that were there. So it was, uh, it was really, really fun. And about six months later, when we actually launched the company in retail, people were asking us, when's the next chocolate milk party going to be? So we ended up <laughs> doing another one uh, a year later, so that, that next February. And if it wasn't for COVID, we would have done it again. So we are hoping to bring those back again at some point. And they're always really fun, just kind of celebrating with chocolate milk and, you know, making espresso martinis with it and maybe and try to have have fun with it. So anyway, that was Kickstarter in February. We ended up 2019, we ended up doing about $50,000 from 1,200 backers. We had a lot of really good, it was a really good proof point for us to show that people were A, interested in the product, but then B, that people are willing to buy chocolate milk online, which is something that we had never tested and had never seen anybody else test. So that was a really good proof point for us. And then from that Kickstarter, two things happened. One, Whole Foods reached out, which we were like, okay, game on. Now we have a retail partner potentially. And then the casting producer of Shark Tank reached out. And we were like, we did not apply. What do you mean? It was like it was like a Gmail. And we we're like, this is definitely fake. And so we ignored it for like three weeks. And then the guy called us. He's like, are you guys ignoring me? Um, <laughs> and it was so funny. And, and he was like, you guys could come on the show. And we were like, we're so early. I don't know. And, and we decided to take on the opportunity. And if anybody watches the episode, you'll see that it was filmed a long time ago. We, the cans on national television, because we didn't even have a manufacturer yet, are actually sparkling waters that we oh, wow. stayed up all night and printed out what the design might look like on printer paper and wrapped sparkling water cans with paper. And that's what we were using. And when they saw we had a $4 million valuation with uh, not even real cans, they were like, okay guys. But it was an absolutely incredible experience you know the 7 minutes they they aired were not the not the most pleasant for us but as we say it was it was tough for the ego but it was great for the brand and i would definitely go back and do it again every single time really 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 cool experience um, Right, and, and, and charting, later, i
1: think i think you could look at it the same way you looked at kickstarter right exactly. like it's it's for marketing
0: yep um, 100% whether you,
1: whether you get a deal or not actually you know i'll be honest some of, a lot of the deals that you get on there aren't great you know, Exactly,
0: um, and, and and they so, knew that we weren't going to do that. Like we had no interest in having a million dollar valuation, and you know, it, it's just it. We had some great partners that we had already started to line up that we were really excited about, and it was amazing to be on there and meet them. And if there was an opportunity to work with them, we would have. It just it wasn't the right fit at the time. So right, you know,
1: we right.
0: kept in touch as much as we can, and you know, about six months later, we ended up launching um, our website and as well as in retail. So. We launched in about 300 stores, Um, Whole Foods worked out. So we launched in New England with them. And then we launched with uh, a couple other chains kind of down the East coast and and another chain in Texas and really just tested. How are we gonna do in retail? How are we gonna sell online? And we were in the stores for about three months until COVID hit. So we we had to pivot very quickly and really focused a lot on e-commerce last year, but it was really cool by the end of 2020, we, we were the number one selling protein drink in all of Whole Foods and our New England region. All three of our SKUs were one, two, and three, which we were super excited about. And we were able to grow from about 300 doors to about 1,000. Our team grew from just me and Manny to, I think there was probably, I think there was six or seven of us last year. And now eight months into 2021, we're in over 3,500 stores. We have a team of 25 strong and we're selling all over the country as well as our own website. And I told you I was going to plug this. We, with our new reformulated SKUs that are even better than ever that launched a couple months ago of 20 grams of protein and no sugar, we just launched our new Amazon listing. So definitely go check us out on Amazon, Slate Milk. It's uh, We're just starting to build our, our traction there and, and we're excited about how big of a channel that can be.
1: Nice, nice. Well, that's that's an awesome story, and it and it's it's great to see kind of where you where you started and and where you guys have ended up. Just a couple of quick questions, and then we'll go into yeah. the, the 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 speed round. So, you know, notice that that you you'd raised some money. You guys raised it looks like one point seven million in February, mm-hmm. and then you you mentioned that you guys just closed another round recently, yep. or are in the in the process, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I just wanted to, you to talk maybe about venture capital in the CPG space, you know, for sure. anybody that's listening, you know, how, how should they think about it? What has been, been your learnings and, and your feedback from, from VCs as you pitch your product?
0: So early on, we kind of went to our immediate circle of, of tech VCs in the Boston area. And as soon as they heard chocolate milk, they were like, what the hell is wrong with you? No, no way. <laughs> The first article ever written about us actually says "from tech to dot 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 milk question mark," mm-hmm. which is just phenomenal. We we definitely had some impact on on that. We wanted that as a title, but I you see. know I think it, it's like anything. It's to bringing it back to a, kind of what I said earlier of it like it's almost like dating, where finding a co founder, finding a VC partner, what finding an angel investor. You're gonna kiss a lot of frogs, you're gonna get a lot of no's, you're gonna get a lot of people that aren't the right fit for either of you. And and for us, it's really just been about finding the right people. And, you know, we've chosen to mostly raise from angel investors and we've we've really focused on angel investors that have been successful in CPG and not. We have a lot of investors that, you know, from the last round that the founder of Halo Top, who learned a lot about being successful and a lot about mistakes that he made and early employees at Stacey's Pita Chips and Chobani and the founders of Yasso frozen Greek yogurt. And so really deep CPG backgrounds. And then, you know, on the other side, people that were involved early on with GoPuff and Snapchat and Drizzly and like things like that, where they have a different perspective and they have more of a tech perspective, but they've built companies and it's, you know, whether you're selling chocolate milk or a delivery app for booze, it's, there's a lot of very similar similarities there. So from an angel perspective, I could not encourage more, just getting out there networking with people and some of our biggest investors, I just message on LinkedIn basically saying, you know, to the Halo Top founder. I made a message on LinkedIn saying, like, we are trying to do for milk what you did for ice cream and what I, I think you guys did an incredible job. And that was it. And he was like, no way, my business partner drinks slate all the time. And that's it just so happened that his business partner already go. drinks slate and there you go. So there you go. Harder the work, the lucky you get. And So that's what we're really focused on there. And I would just encourage you, like you said, you just just reach, ask. The worst thing you can do is say no. And then in terms of VCs, there are definitely fewer, in my world, I had a lot fewer experiences with VCs that also invested in food and beverage. But interestingly enough, I mean, there's a lot of really good ones out there. But some of our venture capital and kind of institutional investors aren't traditional CPG folks. CPG has really caught the eye of some of these firms that aren't traditional CPG ones. I mean, just by looking at Oatly and Oatly IPO and Chobani thinking about IPOing and Celsius that's publicly traded, like there, there's so much more consumer interest and, and just general institutional and consumer investor interest in the world of CPG that I really think you're going to start to see a shift in a lot of these companies taking more interest. So, you know, for our Our lead VC last round, I think we're the second CPG investment they've ever made. And they've made like a hundred different investments. And it was just an opportunity that they saw and they were excited about. And, you know, we we talked to a lot of VCs that were like, either we were too early for, or, you know, they're not interested in the food and beverage space and specifically beverages, you know, beverages have a rap of raising a lot of money and not being profitable. And so you just kind of, like anything else, as I'm sure you know, you guys, as you build out your marketplace, your SaaS company, it's, you know, there's so many SaaS companies It's the, you know, they burn a lot of cash. It's probably a lot of the same things that you've gone through. And it's, it's all about finding the right people at those firms that we felt like aren't those classic, you know, TV VCs that are just hard asses and are going to force you to do things you don't want to do.
1: Right. And not add a lot of value.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: No, no, that's cool. And, and you know, your comments about the, the VC space and just people being interested in investing in CPG brands in general is, is something that we're seeing too. And so we totally agree that uh, we think that this is something that's going to continue to to grow. And, and you know, I, I'd say explode, but I think it's already kind of doing that. You know, there's so many great CPG companies coming out and, and they can grow really fast, you know, get a good product, find the right market, and uh, these yep. things can explode. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, let's uh, jump into the quick fire round. I've got four questions for you. Okay, um, <laughs> hey, cool. What's uh, one tool or resource uh, that has helped you the most in, in your career?
0: <sighs> one tool or resource? It's it's got to be I keep saying it, but family. Leaning on them a lot. They've been a huge support system. And family includes girlfriend and close friends. That being an entrepreneur isn't easy. And usually you take, you get a lot of time taken away from you from spending it with them and they've been very supportive.
1: What is uh, one book that you can recommend to the audience?
0: I really like Raving Fans. It's kind of an old one, but my dad made me read it when I was growing up. And it's all about turning your customer or the person sitting across from you into one of your raving fans. And it's, it's an oldie, but a goodie and you can read it in like one
1: night. What's uh, one piece of advice that you would give to your 21-year-old self?
0: That is a good one. I would say to just keep your eyes and ears open and keep doing what you're doing. Like Continue to learn from people around you. Don't have an open mind about everything going on and, and really just pay attention to what people are doing around you and and what people kinds of mistakes they're doing, what things they're doing well. And for me, experience has been the key to doing anything right in my life. And so just picking my head up more often and and looking around and noticing, I think would be something that I could do better at.
1: And then last, who is one person that you'd love to to have lunch with? And that could be, you know, an entrepreneur that you look up to, somebody that you you watch closely, you know, somebody that's done something you want to do. You know, who's who's one person that you'd love to take out to lunch?
0: I absolutely I hate to be this guy, especially from Boston. But <laughs> you, you can't not you can't not say I I I am not only as a as as the Patriots player, I think you knew where this was going, but but Tom Brady, <laughs> just his mentality, the way he studies, the way he's developed his craft, his dedication to his work ethic, to being fit, you know, trying to be a businessman at the same time, like that guy, whatever it takes to win, he's just found a way to do it. And, you know, football aside, I I just getting inside that guy's mind would be, I think, an incredible, you know, hour or however long it takes. Even if he's not eating tomatoes or anything like that, I still think it would be a very, (laughs) very interesting hour.
1: Tom Brady is pretty impressive, you know, and, <laughs> and, and he's just a good guy and humble yeah. and, you know, like, you know, uh, anyway, he, he's very impressive. Yeah. Well, you're impressive yourself. I think this has been a fantastic uh, interview. Thank you so much for doing this. If somebody wanted to reach out, for, reach out to you, um, what's yeah. the best way for them to do that?
0: Anybody can email me or you can find me on Instagram. So my email is josh, J-O-S-H, at slatemilk.com. S L A T E M I L K dot com and my Instagram is just my name. Keep it easy. Josh Dash Bolinski. dot com. Just Josh
1: Dash Bolinski. Well, Josh, thank you for, for doing this and watch out for that hurricane this
0: weekend. <laughs> I appreciate yeah. it, man. It was great to uh, it was great to connect. All
1: right, and go Patriots, right? Yeah, not exactly. Any, not anymore. Anyway, you gotta you gotta cheer for the <laughs> bucks now.
0: I know, which we do. Cool.
1: <laughs> cool. All right. Hey, thanks, man.
0: Yeah.
1: Thanks, Ken. Yep. The Physical Product Movement podcast is brought to you by Fiddle. To find out more about Fiddle and how our industry-leading inventory ops platform is giving modern brands and manufacturers full visibility into their inventory and operations, visit fiddle.io and then make sure to search for Physical Product Movement in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Fiddle, thanks for listening.